All right. Um, we are in Acts chapter 11 today, and uh, we're looking at a watershed moment in history. Now, you guys know what a watershed or continental divide is. It's a place where the rain falls and the water on one side of the divide flows in one direction, the water on the other side of the divide flows in another direction. This is a map of the major watersheds in the United States, and just look at how giant the watershed for the Mississippi River is. It's actually the fourth largest in the entire world. Part of the reason that the United States was able to be settled and thrive on the interior is because of that amazing river system there. Now notice, in the area of Chicago, how little distance there is between the Great Lake watershed and the Mississippi watershed. Like it, Mississippi goes like right up to Chicago and then switches over to Lake Michigan there. And also notice that there's a divide pretty close to us. We think of a, a watershed divide as like pointy mountains, right? But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's very undramatic, but it still works. So if we go to the next slide, here's a simplification of Ohio. You can kind of see where we would be over there on the left corner, left side there. And if we go to the next one, all right, if you drove just a few miles north of here to Marion Local School, and then you drove just a few houses south of Marion Local, you would come to an imaginary invisible line that's represented on this map with the purple line. And if you stood on that line, you would look around and think, there is nothing special going on here. It is just more flatness of western Ohio. Maybe there's a little bit of a noticeable rise, but not much. But if you could take a bucket of water or a glass of water and you could pour it out right on that line, obviously it would sink into the ground, but theoretically... If it were to run off, some of the water that you poured would run north towards Grand Lake, and then it would run northwest out of Grand Lake. Caleb, you can go to the next slide, towards Fort Wayne. And then the next slide, once it gets over by Fort Wayne, it would run northeast out the Maumee River to Toledo into Lake Erie. From Lake Erie, it would go over Niagara Falls into Lake Ontario and out the St. Lawrence Seaway to the North Atlantic. A molecule that made that travel could have been, before you dumped it out of the bucket, touching another molecule that ended up going the other direction. And it would have flowed into Laramie Creek and into the Great Miami and down through Dayton and to the Ohio River and the Mississippi River out to the Gulf of Mexico. And if you would go down to the Gulf of Mexico and you could scoop up that southbound water molecule and then you wanted to sail it up to join it with its cousin that it formerly was attached to, you would have to sail 3,300 miles to get to its cousin. And they started by touching each other. The moment that we're looking at in Acts chapter 11 and that we looked at in Acts chapter 10 is a watershed moment in the history of the world. On one side of that watershed, history flows in one direction. On the other side, it flows in another direction. The things that took place in Acts chapter 10 and that get recounted in Acts chapter 11 not only changed the history of God's work in God's people, the history of the church, but it actually changes the history of the whole world. The fact that the United States and Western Europe actually grew up as a civilization is a direct result of what we are looking at today. Without this moment... 
our world would be entirely different, and the story of eternity would be entirely different too. Last week, we saw how Peter had traveled from Jerusalem, eventually to the town of Caesarea, where he met with a Roman soldier named Cornelius. He went to Cornelius' house, he ate a meal with Cornelius, he shared the gospel message with Cornelius and his household, and Cornelius and his household, they came to faith in Jesus. That was so utterly shocking for Peter, so out of his realm of possibility that God had to work in Peter through some stages of preparation where he was doing some things in the first city that he visited and doing some things in the second city that he visited. And then finally, a miraculous vision where an angel communicates to Peter exactly what he's supposed to do in order to get Peter to do this thing that Peter had been trained his whole life not to do. Peter, as a good law-observant Jew, knew that God had said, stay away from the Gentile people. Don't go to the home of a Gentile person. Don't go in and have a meal with a Gentile person. You, as a Jewish person, are supposed to be holy, set apart, different. You are my chosen people, God said multiple times to the Jewish people. And yet, in this particular story... God is doing something radically different. And it would have been really hard for Peter to get up to speed on that. And as we'll see here, it's actually harder for the rest of the church to get up to speed on it too. Last week we saw this story through the personal uh, eyewitness account of Peter, of Cornelius. It was down at that personal level in the house with them. What did they experience? What was that like? Today we see the same thing, but we're zoomed out to this this whole wide-angle view where we see why does this matter for us and for the history of the world. We're going to read through Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18 here. And the first part of it, you're going to think, wait a minute, didn't we just do this last week? Yeah. Some of of Acts 11, 1 through 18 is just a repeat or a retelling of what happened last week, and we have to wonder if, if at the time that Luke is writing this, it's so rare to have anything written down and be able to copy it, and it's expensive to send around. Why would he repeat himself? Why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would God make sure that Luke is recording for us some of the very same things that he recorded just a few paragraphs before? And we have to come to the conclusion that God wants to make sure that we get this, that of all those amazing things that take place in the book of Acts, this is one that he wants to repeat and drill into our heads because of how important this is. So... Acts 11, verse 1. Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem. He's going to report to them what had happened. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And I only made it through one verse, but let me point out a couple things here. We've got the apostles named, the 12 guys who are the main leaders of the church, and then the rest of the church is summed up with that word, brothers, And that's curious because we just saw last week or the week before that Luke previously referred to the church as saints. Why make the change? Well, it's strategic. It's on purpose. The the Christians, the followers of Jesus who are in Jerusalem and the, the county of Judea, they are Jewish, 
and are now following Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So they are, by nationality, by blood, they are related to each other. They are brothers. But as Luke tells this story, he wants us to realize that their true brotherhood is actually within the church. It has nothing to do with being blood relations to each other, being part of the Jewish nation. He's, he's going to point to a higher reality that when you are saved by Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God, and it doesn't matter what your nationality is, you are now brother or sister with all other saved Christians. And I think that's why he picks that word brothers there. He's, he's setting us up for the main point here. Now, how is the actual conversion of these Gentiles described? It's said this way, that they received the word of God. That's a curious way for Luke to describe how these guys became Christians. Because he doesn't say, you know, like they had this emotional experience or that they walked an aisle or they prayed a particular prayer or they just collapsed in tears at the front of the church. None of that. It's this, it's, it's, almost, it's almost sterile from this point of view. It's like they received the word of God. Now, people come to Christ in all kinds of variations of emotional and non-emotional and, uh, you know, big groups of people or by yourself or, or however it works. There's lots of variation in that. But at its core, conversion, becoming a Christian, is not an emotional thing. It's a word thing. That the word of God that, that Peter brought to Cornelius and his household, where he proclaimed the gospel, the good news to them, they received that word. They trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Now, part of what Peter explained to them would have been the offensive bad news of the gospel. And yet they received that too. And received the good news after it. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now that is a quick turn of events. We go from rejoicing, celebrating. Last week we saw God opened the door of the church to the Gentile people. Peter comes back to the main church in Jerusalem, and he is immediately met with criticism and resistance. I have been amazed over and over again how quickly we church people can be critical and turn on each other. And I can be critical guy number one. But man, we can eat our own. We, we can be cannibals, can't we? And here in this particular case, we see a, a division in the church. One group rises up and attacks Peter and the ministry that he's come to report on. And you know, I, I think about the, the history of our church and how we've, we've experienced in the last 30 years essentially three different church splits where a group of people will gather together and they'll be upset about something and they'll argue with other people and, and there'll be this divide that forms and eventually what was one church splits and becomes two or becomes one and a disintegrating group of, of other people. And that is sad. That's not how church life is supposed to be. 
But it is a little comforting to me that even at the beginning of church life, even at this amazing moment where Peter is sharing that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, even he had to deal with some of that division. The group that rises up calls themselves the circumcision party, which is curious in itself. If you were going to try to get a third political party going in the United States, you would not choose the name of the circumcision party, right? Did you vote last week? Did you vote Republican, Democrat, or circumcision? It just, it's, you don't, we don't talk like that, right? Why were they called that? Well, it was because they were using the sign of Jewish belonging, the sign of circumcision, as a way of drawing a line between those who could be in the church and those who could not be in the church. They were seeing Jesus only as the Jewish Messiah, the rescuer come to rescue the Jewish people. And so they were coming to the conclusion that if you are going to be a Christian, first you must be a Jew. And if you're not a Jew, you must convert to Judaism. And for the guys, that meant circumcision. And for everybody, it meant following the Old Testament laws. They would say, we welcome you into the church, but only if you first become Jewish. And so when Peter shows up and he says, look, the Gentiles received the word of God. They're like, hey, slow down. Slow down, Peter. You should know better. We are the chosen people of God. And if they want to be part of the chosen people of God, then they have to follow the rules. Right? That's what's happening here. In fact, they're angry at Peter. I, we get just a, a little summary here, but I assume that there's, there's a lot of yelling and pointing fingers and red faces and, and uh, dramatic hand gestures at each other. This probably was a long, drawn-out argument. How could Peter break God's law? God gave us the commandment to stay holy, separate from those pagan Gentiles. How could he possibly do that? And then come and claim that God worked through that. You can see the, the way that they would be self-righteously very angry about this. So in this public church meeting, and probably lots of yelling, and they're, they're accusing Peter of sin. How will he respond? Verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Now, I just, I love that. That is surprising because if you have read your New Testament a few times, you know that Peter is quite the hothead. He's the guy who chops the ear off the dude when Jesus is being arrested. Peter is unpredictable. Peter is often out of control, and yet... Jesus is growing Peter up. And so in this moment where Peter is publicly being attacked by this group of people, and they're accusing him of things, he responds in calm and in order, and he explains to them what happened. Not just in order chronologically, that's not all that it means there, but he does it in an orderly way. Order is a gift from God. Genesis tells us that God took the chaos and created order out of it, bringing order to the whole universe that then we get to inhabit. And he tasks humans with the job of 
creating and sustaining order in all kinds of different levels. So the order of the family, the order of the church, the order of a, a village or community, the order of a whole nation. When those things are ordered rightly, the people can thrive, even if they're not the people of God. Because God created this world to work in order. And when we allow disorder and chaos to destroy what God has built and ordered, it just leads to human suffering. We see that very clearly in some of the current events in our world today and over the last few years. As things of order are being disordered, people pay the price. But in this particular situation, as chaos rises up in the church community, Peter, hothead Peter, now controlled by Christ, exercises self-control in the Spirit of God. And he calmly explains what's going on. Here's what he says. I was in the city of Yope praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descendant, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely... I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, if you listened, if you tuned in last week, you know that um, God here in the vision is telling Peter to eat some of the animals that he had previously told the Jewish people you cannot eat, these unclean animals. And there's more to the conversation there, but at this point, as Peter's relaying this to the, the people who are listening, and especially those of the circumcision party, when he says, I heard the voice saying to me, rise, Peter, and kill and eat, there would have been a gasp go through the crowd. And they would have assumed that the voice speaking to Peter in this mysterious vision is not the voice of God, but rather the voice of Satan or a demon, because it is telling Peter to do something that God had previously told the Jewish people not to do. They would expect Peter to now tell them how he rebuked the voice and decided not to follow it. Well, Peter did rebuke the voice, but he also recognized that the voice was the Lord Jesus. There's the old Peter, right? Arguing with Jesus. Verse 8. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth, but the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven. I want you to be sure to understand what's going on here. God's using this picture of food in order to communicate the bigger truth to Peter. Not that God has um, erased or canceled out the Old Testament laws or the command of the Jewish people to be holy, to be set apart. He's not lowering the bar saying that, well, I guess those pagan godless Gentiles, they're they're good enough. We'll just lower the bar and we'll let them in. No, instead he's saying, I am making those who were unclean clean. I'm just doing it in a different way than you're used to. You're used to the whole that sacrificial system, and, and, and that didn't even work anyway. It was because as soon as you offered the sacrifice, like the next hour you've sinned a hundred times anyway, right? That Old Testament system was temporary. It was a, it was a holding place. It was As Paul would say, it was a a shadow of what was to come, and Christ is the fulfillment of that. 
It's not that, that God's told Peter to, to just, just go break the Old Testament law because it doesn't matter anymore. It's because that Old Testament law is now fulfilled in Christ. The greater has come. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 5, 17. This is the beginning of his ministry. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's not that they were wrong. It's that they were incomplete. And that's by design. It's on purpose. It's pointing towards the coming Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who would be the perfect sacrifice, the fulfiller of all the Old Testament law and the plan of God the Father. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Galatians 3. Now before faith came, speaking of saving faith in Christ, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then... The law was our guardian or uh, like a, a legal uh, overseer of a young person until they're old enough to be an adult. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, not justified by the works of the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. And who is he writing to? He's writing to Gentile people in another land, a land of Galatia. And he's able to say to them, through faith in Christ, you are all sons of God. That's God's plan from eternity past, worked out through thousands of years of Jewish history, coming to this culmination, this fulfillment in Christ. All right, back to Peter. He's describing the vision. He's got the point. Okay, God is making them clean. That's the point of the vision. God is making the Gentile people clean. Praise God. Verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction, meaning just because they're Gentile people, don't ignore them. You go with them. These six brothers also accompanied me, meaning like he's got them standing there with him. These six brothers. And we entered the man's house. Now, last week, as we went through all of chapter 10, Cornelius was one of the two main characters, right? We might say he was the main character. And yet here in 11, his name isn't even used. This is because Peter's zoomed so far out. God is communicating here through the inspiration of the Spirit for Luke to write it in this way so that we are understanding that this is not just about Cornelius. This is about the whole world. Now, at the point that he said, me and these six brothers, we went, we went into the house, the guys in the circumcision party, they would still be thinking that Peter must be deceived because it can't be the Spirit of God telling him to go with these Gentiles because God would not do that. Verse 13. And he, that is Cornelius, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Yope and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so this was the detail that wasn't included in 10, but that we looked at last week. That the reason... Cornelius is supposed to send for Peter, according to the angel, is that Peter will bring him a message by which his whole house could be saved. 
And we looked at how God could have just communicated through the angel to Cornelius directly. Here's the message that you need to know. Here's what the gospel is. But instead, he works through this complicated plan, and Peter's got to walk 31 miles up the coast to Caesarea so that Peter can be the one to deliver the message, the gospel of Jesus, to Cornelius. Because Peter then becomes the messenger of what happened, he goes back and he talks to the church about it, and God's working through this whole plan through his people. But we can't miss this point. Without the gospel message, there is no salvation. So the angel didn't show up to say to Cornelius, hey, guess what? Now you're part of the family of God. And Peter didn't walk in and say, hey, hey, brother, an angel sent me to you. I guess you're one of us now. No, Peter walks in and he shares the message of the gospel, both the, both the offensive challenging part of it, the bad news, we're all sinners, we're all hopeless, we, we've got no way of getting connected with God on our own, and the good news that God made the way for us by Jesus dying on our behalf, and it is by repentance and faith that we come to salvation. Both the bad and the good news included in that message that I'm sure Peter took a long time to unpack for them. He would have explained that they were dead in their sins. They had no hope of eternal life, but God, in his great love and mercy, made a way for them to be made alive. Remember that when they received this word, Peter didn't even get to finish. He was interrupted. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What is Peter talking about there? He's talking about, and it was clear as we read through 10, he's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit is poured out, poured into these Gentiles when they became believers. And the way that Peter knew that was happening was because they, ex- they experienced and they demonstrated the same thing that the Jewish people demonstrated when the Spirit came on them back on the day of Pentecost, that they as Gentile new believers, they began to be able to speak in tongues. They were able to speak in languages that they had not learned. Now, that is not normal. And the reason it's included in here is because it's not normal. It's because it's so special that it is a message. That Peter then can go back to the Jewish Christians and say, you guys remember that crazy day of Pentecost? And we had no idea what was going on, but suddenly the Spirit was poured out on us, and people from all different parts of the the, uh, Roman Empire were able to speak in their native languages, yes, but also in languages that they had never heard before, and we could understand each other. Do you remember that? That same thing happened as I was preaching the gospel to these Gentiles. And now the, the folks in the circumcision party are like, They're speechless, right? They, they, don't, they don't know what to say. Because either Peter's making this up, right? I mean, he brought some witnesses with him too. Or God is doing something here that is utterly surprising to them and scandalous to them. Seventeen. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's a good question to ask ourselves, right? Maybe write that one on your mirror and look at it each morning. Who am I to stand in God's way? It might make us look at our days a little differently. I'm sure that that question at the end echoed through the room because they were struck silent. He had shut them up. He had shut them down. It was, it was a mic drop moment. They were speechless. We see that in the next verse. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Now, the rest of the verse tells us they're going to go on and make some noise, but there was a pause there. The anger, the yelling, all the tension, all that stuff just it goes silent as the crowd realizes we have been wrong. God has been at work in a way that we could not imagine, that we were actually working against. And yet now that we see what God is doing, we don't know what to say. We are speechless before this amazing grace. This is why this is a watershed moment. This changes everything. Imagine the question, the confused looks, the, and then the wonder in the, the faces of even the circumcision party members as they realize not only how wrong they were, but how good God's plan actually is. It's so much bigger than what they thought. Now, they shouldn't really have been surprised because Jesus himself, you know, at the Great Commission, he said this, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That was the commission given to the church, passed down from those who heard it to those who hadn't heard it, and spread all over the church in Jerusalem. Go, make disciples of all nations. That's a pretty big clue about what God's plan is. And yet... Thousands of years of Jewish history and tradition was just narrowing their focus down, and they couldn't imagine what was going on. If we look at the theme slide image that we've been using for this series, we've been saying Acts is about being called out and sent out, and we've got that little symbol down in the bottom left corner there to help us picture this. We are called out of the world, gathered together as God's people, as a church, as, as a family of God, but then we're sent back out into the world on a mission. We're not just gathered for our own sake, we're sent out for the sake of others. We are to be disciples who are making disciples, not just within our families, although that is incredibly important, not just within our church, which is incredibly important, but we are to be making disciples of people who are outside also. And that's really the scandal of this passage. Peter goes so outside that the insiders can't handle it. And yet that's what Jesus has commissioned us to do. And so as they realize this, as this all comes together in their mind and they've been short-circuiting, you can see the smoke coming out as they're trying to process what's going on and it becomes clear to them and they're left speechless. And then what? Verse 18 again, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I love this, that the focus gets zoomed right into God. It's not about Peter and the amazing way that he convinced them, won them over. 
It's not even about the Gentiles coming into saving faith. This is about God. And when they see the picture, the, the way that God is playing out in history and the fact that he's now enfolding the Gentiles into the church, their response is to glorify God. Now we're going to get to do that in a few minutes as we sing, Is He Worthy? There are parts of that song that just fit so well with this, from every tribe and tongue and nation, people coming together to glorify God. But first, I want us to look at how this passage ends. What do the people say? They say, quote, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And we can't, can't miss this. All right? There's, they're, they're plainly amazed at what God is doing But what do they say and how do they say it? God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, for this next few minutes to make sense, you've got to understand that I believe not only is the Bible the Word of God, but I believe it is the words of God. That it is inspired, written by human authors, copied by human hands, translated by human translation teams, but that when God was originally inspiring Luke, the word inspire in spirit, the spirit of God working through someone, inspiring Luke to write this for us, that in that original, God is making sure that exactly the right thing is being written. And that the words used, the tenses of the words, the order of the words, all of that stuff matters. Now, I'm not claiming that a translation is divinely inspired but that what God originally communicated to Luke and he wrote down for us and has been preserved for us and translated into English for us is divinely inspired. And so what is said here matters even in the detail. God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what is it that leads to life? It's repentance. If you want to end up At the destination of life, he's talking about eternal life, the road you should walk is repentance. Now, I talk about this all the time. And one of the reasons why I talk about it all the time is because the greater culture, even the greater Christian culture in America, has largely ignored the idea and the necessity of repentance. So it doesn't even make sense to many of us today to think about the word repentance in connection with salvation or in connection with growing in Christ. We could take the most popular Bible passage in the world, John 3.16, which promises that all who believe in Jesus will have eternal life. And then we can take a faulty, which we inherited it, a faulty idea of what it means to believe, and then we can make a faulty conclusion about what that verse means, and we could end up with a wrong understanding. But I've said to you guys many, many times that the idea of biblical belief, biblical faith, is not simply the idea of turning toward Jesus in faith. It's also the idea, on the other side of that coin, of turning away from our sin, away from trusting in ourselves so that we can trust in Jesus. And when when Luke is recording this for us, when Jesus is preaching, when Paul is preaching, all these things are happening, they all had this this worldview drilled into them. It made sense to them, and yet we're so far from it, I... I feel like i got to remind us often. It is repentance, we're told here, that leads to life. Without repentance, 
they don't find life. Now that shouldn't surprise us either because Jesus himself in Mark 1, when he comes on the scene, he says this, time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. He's already the first words out of his mouth as a grown man in his ministry, his first words are repent and believe, linked together. We should not separate them. So, let me ask you, are you repentant? I'm not just talking about salvation, moment of salvation repentance. I mean, like, just in life, do you have a disposition? Do you have an inclination? Do you have a posture of repentance? Are you quick to say, God, I have blew it. I, I messed it up. I sinned in this way. I, I come back to you in repentance and confession. Is that, is that fast for you? Or do you fight against Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he put it this way, part of that document that he nailed to the the door that caused such a stir, he said this, the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. As you grow in Christ, or really, this is how you grow in Christ, throughout your life, whether you just came to faith in Christ or you've been with him for 50 years, your whole life should be marked by a posture of repentance. All right, final point. Back to verse 18. Let's look at that last verse again. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Where does that repentance come from, according to this verse? It comes from God. That's kind of a weird way of thinking, right? It doesn't say that God repents. Of course not. He didn't do anything wrong. But it's saying that somehow our repentance is granted to us. It's given to us, comes from God. Now, you've you've heard me preach lots about the other side of that, the faith side of it. The faith is a gift. We see that very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The faith is a gift of grace given to us. If you have been saved by Jesus, that is, you you have saving faith in Christ, it is not because you are naturally disposed to have a bunch of faith. Or because you, you just, like, by the force of your will, you, you stirred up a bunch of faith inside of you to the point where you could exercise that faith in Christ. No, if you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, it is because God has gifted, he's chosen to give you the gift of faith, which you turn around and exercise back towards him. It starts with him. And if it didn't start with him, none of us would be able to muster up enough faith to make this work. The same is true of the other side of that coin, of repentance. If we can come to God in repentance, it is not by our own will, by our own natural repentiosity, but that God has given us the gift of repentance. You say, no, wait, wait a minute. This is Luke recording for us what these people are saying in response to the realization of what God has done, I think you're making it too specific, preacher. Because this, this is talking about this whole, this big group, this kind of people, the Gentiles. And so maybe, maybe it's saying that God just generally makes it possible now for the Gentiles to repent. And you seem to be making it too specific, like God's giving a particular person this gift of repentance. And so let me just turn you to our last thing for today. 2 Timothy 2.24. 
This is Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy, trying to encourage him, telling him how to lead the churches that he is responsible for and how to deal with individuals. And he says this, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, i got to tell you that that sentence weighs heavily on me. That is what is expected of me. Even like Peter in that situation where he's in, or crazy and, and chaotic, and he's got to bring order. This, the words here of the Spirit through Paul to Timothy to us are really challenging to me. Then he goes on. Why should the young pastor Timothy treat the people in his church the way that it was just described? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Talking about individuals here. There are individuals who who, uh, Timothy has to intentionally choose not to be quarrelsome with, and he must be teaching them, and he must patiently endure evil from them, and he must correct them as his opponents in gentleness so that hopefully those individuals, God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, you know, a, a category of people, the Gentiles, they don't come to their senses. Individuals come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So these individuals, they're saying they're trapped by Satan. They're stuck in a, in a snare and they're, they're being forced to do the will of the one who wants to destroy them. And God may rescue them from that. Perhaps he will give them the gift of repentance, which will get them out of that snare and point them in the direction of life. These are the instructions for Timothy on how to interact with the individuals that God has put under his care. I hope this realization leaves us speechless too. This realization that whether it was years ago or days ago or moments ago, if we have come to Christ in repentance and faith, it's not even just the faith that is the gift to us, but it's the repentance that is the gift to us, that it is all about God, it is not about us. And just like in this moment when the people realize that this is not even about the Gentiles coming to faith, this is about God, they give glory to God. And I hope that in your hearts that same desire is welling up right now. Glory to God. Praise God. God, that he chose to give me the gift of repentance and faith and save me, even though I was caught in the snare of the devil and I was captured by him to do his will, God saved me. So if God has saved you, if he's given you that gift of repentance and faith, it wasn't because you were worthy, it wasn't because you were special or impressive. It was his sovereign choice, and because of that, he deserves all of the glory. He is the one who is worthy of our praise and our thanks. Let's pray, and then let's sing of him and his worthiness. Lord, I pray that you would take the words from our passage this morning, and that you put them deep into our hearts and our minds, that when we are tempted to rise up in pride and think about how we're better than others and how we've been more faithful than others or we we've exercised faith in Christ in a way that is 
is better than how others have, or, or we're just really good at repenting unlike those other people that we know that are terrible at repenting. Lord, as that pride rises up in us, would you remind us of this passage and destroy that pride that is a work of our enemy, Satan, who's still trying to ensnare us. As we fall into the other trap of just beating ourselves up and thinking there's 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 no hope for me. And yeah, Jesus has saved others, but I just I just keep messing up so badly. There's there's no way I've I thought I was his and yet I've continued in this sin and I just there's no way I could be saved by him. As that hopelessness, as that despair comes crushing down on some of us, Lord, help us to remember this passage in the amazing way that you went to the Gentile people, preach the gospel to them through the word of Peter and save them, even though they were hopeless the moment before then. Lord, through all of this, we recognize that it is not us, it is you. You are the one that is worthy of glory, and so we want to come and glorify you. You are the one that is worthy of praise and honor and thanks. And so as we, as we sing this last song, Lord, work in our hearts, help us to communicate to you the things that we want to but can't. Use the gift of music to do that for us. Make us a people that is thankful and that has a posture of repentance. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.